0: This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. We've very conscientiously avoided talking too much about COVID-19 on the Science News Roundup so far. The way we see it, that news is everywhere right now. And this show is a nice respite from the all-pandemic, all-the-time programming that you're getting everywhere else. But our monthly News Roundup is also a program about some of the biggest news in science. And the news coming from the vaccine race appears to be quite good. And so yes, on this month's program, we'll be dedicating a good bit of time to discussing what this news means. When can we expect the vaccine to arrive? Who should get it first? Are there any health and safety concerns? We'll be doing that with two of our favorite people in the world. First, a frequent guest of our show, an amazingly brilliant scientist and a good friend. is Utah State University geneticist, Mirella Maierfica. Marella, welcome
1: back. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's always so much fun.
0: And also with us today for the first time in a while is Ryan Haupt, a paleontologist and podcaster and one of the hosts of a super cool show called Science, Sort Of, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Matthew. As I noted, we're going to get to the vaccine news today, but let's first turn to some of the coolest science stories that didn't get quite as much attention this month as the vaccine story did. Let's turn to something I think was the most charming story of all of science in the past month. Researchers watching Monarch caterpillars found that these little squirmy guys will headbutt one another when they're competing for food. Ryan and Morella, what I really love about this study is it came from a very simple observation. The lead researcher's wife pointed out that two caterpillars in their backyard were fighting and when he went to check the literature to learn more he saw well there wasn't any particularly there wasn't any about monarch caterpillars doing this so he said hey let's do something this is how science should start right
1: I agree. I, I like that. It it just tells us science might seem overwhelming at times, but we only know a fraction of what's going on, and we just need to keep our eyes open, and there is so much more to discover. That's a really cool part of the story.
2: It also, I think, kind of breaks the mentality that science has to be this grind where you go into the lab and you just crank it out every single day. Like, part of science is just stopping to smell the roses, so to speak, you know, just observe the natural world long enough to see something that whether it's been seen before or not, if it hasn't been described in the scientific literature, there's an opportunity there to increase the body of our scientific knowledge about the world. And I just think that's
0: cool. This is what I would really love for more people to understand and embrace about science. And I think this has to come from scientists as well, this celebration of these sort of like, gee whiz moments, the sorts of things that could have been just as easily studied by, you know, like an elementary school kid doing a science project.
1: I feel in science, we're so much getting used to that everything needs to be purpose-driven. We forget sometimes that inspirational science comes from keeping an open mind and keeping the eyes open.
2: And what I didn't know, I mean, we think about caterpillars as the larval stage of butterflies and moths, but I didn't realize how they have to pack on mass to get ready for their transformation. <laughs> this was uh, my
0: favorite part of this story.
2: Yeah. So the researchers said that from the egg to the chrysalis, they go up in weight by 3,000 times, uh, which they said was the equivalent of a person gaining the weight of two blue whales in about two weeks.
1: What I also liked about the study was that, you know, caterpillars are kind of, strange looking creatures, right? They seem very remote from us, but their behavior is just the same, right? So i thinking about it, you know, no wonder you can have two people and they will start headbutting if they have to compete for food, right?
0: It's relatable. Like yes, a- anybody who grew up with brothers and sisters and not very <laughs> yes. much food knows how this goes.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
2: and the issue here is that monarch caterpillars can only feed on milkweed Um, So there's only one kind of plant and metabolically, it's very taxing for a small little caterpillar to climb down off of a single plant and crawl over to a nearby plant, let alone if they could even find another milkweed plant. So, you know, there's this metabolic trade-off where it's more efficient for them just to headbutt their rivals out of the way and hope that they can gobble up the food before their rivals can get back to the buffet, so to speak, than it is to try to find a new plant where everybody can share resources more equally.
0: Let's turn from biology to archaeology, and in the coolest archaeology study I've read in a very long time, researchers in Peru have found the 9,000-year-old skeleton of a young woman who appears to have been a big game hunter. My 13-year-old daughter absolutely loved reading about this discovery. And I think she wants to go shoot a mammoth now. The lead author for this study recalled seeing the skeleton for the first time surrounded by projectile points and stone tools. And immediately he assumed it was a man. Of course, right? Because that's Mm -hmm. what we do.
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of a natural human thing to extrapolate from your current situation, current surroundings to what has been going on. I'm very much with your daughter. I was fascinated by this, especially at first when I just read it, I thought, well, probably it was just like the random one-off. But it turns out they they have statistical evidence that it was actually pretty common. It wasn't the extraordinary thing to have a woman as a big game hunter. It was the common thing. It was basically the no one cared about your gender hunter-gatherer society, which I thought was the coolest finding ever.
0: This is why it was so interesting to me that the researcher immediately assumed that he was looking at the skeleton of a man when he saw these tools, these hunting tools, because when he and his research team went back and looked at published records of 27 burials of ancient hunters with big game hunting tools, it was pretty close to a 50-50 split between men and women.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it probably means that there were Other factors that were more important, I'm assuming hunter-gatherers were kind of scraping by, trying to make a living, and they had probably factors like how old or how agile is a hunter being more important than is it a woman or a man?
2: You know, it's funny thinking about hunter-gatherer systems. I think we're seeing kind of a weird one-two punch of the legacy of of sort of, you know, white European colonialism and how we do a lot of our science. And also, I I read this book uh, a couple of years ago called Paleo Fantasy that was sort of trying to disentangle some of the myths we have in our mind about ancient peoples. And one of the problems is, you know, a lot of early anthropology that was interested in studying these ancient groups looks at modern hunter-gatherer groups uh, particularly in the early days of anthropology and archaeology in sub-Saharan Africa some of the traits that they have where you know it is more likely for the males to go out and do the hunting we just sort of map onto these ancient cultures even though there's not really strong evidence to suggest that the way one hunter-gatherer culture developed and persisted into modern day is how these ancient hunter-gatherer cultures also did things um, so I think there's just a lot of sort of unraveling of mythmaking that needs to be done to make sure that we're not biasing how we view these really cool archaeological finds when we first find them, even by scientists.
0: And this, of course, is pervasive in science in every level, right? Like white male colonial centric ideas of how the world works that really established, you know, how we see science, how we categorize different things in our world, even how we see who belongs in science.
1: Right. One thing that I also found really interesting in this, in the original description for this, uh, in the original paper was that they have very clear evidence, like 8,000 years ago in the early holocene, they had this more egalitarian society where the gender didn't matter in hunter-gatherer practices. But then later on in like the middle holocene, they have some evidence that there was a clear male dominance in big game hunting. It seemed to have been a cultural evolutionary thing to get toward this male-dominated society, probably when the society could afford to not have the positive impact or the positive attributes of everyone contribute. So
2: when it became more about like a trophy or status, than it became a male-dominated thing is what you're kind of thinking?
1: I'm thinking that in longer evolutionary terms, often the societies that have most reproductive success dominate. So it could be that at some point, I guess that hunter-gatherers have had probably a relatively high death rate. And as a human society, I think it's easier to lose more males than females and keep the same reproductive rate up.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Like You can risk losing a male a lot more than you can risk losing a female because... Of the way we contribute to reproduction. So the men went out not because they were better at it, but because we could afford to lose them.
1: I think evolutionary, that would be my take on it, yes. So <laughs> to make it your I, I think, depending on which tools you use, you know, the hunter gatherers that use this adult, adult technology, I think probably being young and agile was most beneficial. But in the long run, yeah, I think it was easier for a society to lose men than females.
0: Ryan, what do you think about the men were expendable theory? I like it a lot.
2: Uh, I mean, I'm thinking we got to do a prequel to the, the film franchise, right? like the expendables, but it's sliced alone 9,000 years ago up in the Peruvian Highlands (laughs) getting sent off to, uh, I mean, you know, we, and we do see that like in, um, in fiction and fantasy and stuff like that. Like if you read the Song of Ice and Fire books in the culture of the North, when winter comes, older men or men who can't contribute as much to the farm or to society will say, I'm going to go hunting. And that's their code for just walking into the woods to die because they don't want to be a drain on their family's resources anymore. So there's a fictional precedent, which is maybe not the most helpful in a scientific (laughs) study, but you know, it's fun to think about.
0: Well, it can well, be fiction can be informative. We see this in, in science fiction a lot, right? We like read or watch versions of the future that we then think about trying to achieve and often get there sooner than fiction suggested that we even would.
2: And I, I think something I've thought about is I saw an interview with Robin Wright, and she was talking about her role in Wonder Woman and it was Colbert, I think, and he was like, Isn't it great for all these little girls to see, you know, this story of this really powerful woman superhero. And Robin Wright says, and little boys too. And so it's like, it's not just about empowering women. It's also about showing everyone in our society that women can do anything. So it's it's uh, the rising tide lifts all boats theory.
1: Exactly. I think at some point, we just have to be able to let go of classifying people and putting them in drawers. That's why having two uh, Nobel laureates last month was so special. But our long term goal should be To lose that factor as being of relevance.
2: Ironically, Marilla, if the archaeologists were diligent in the curation of these archaeological remnants, then they probably did end up in a drawer. But just these specific bones, because that's the proper way to store them.
0: Finally, as promised, we really can't let the show go by without talking about what might go down in history as one of the greatest scientific accomplishments of this century so far. To put this into context, vaccines generally take years. They can even take decades to develop. The vaccines that were announced to be upwards of 90% effective against COVID-19 this month took about 10 months to produce. This is... Manhattan Project-level success, except for without the atomic bomb at the end.
1: Yes. I'm very, very glad that we got those results. I think one thing that we should also keep in mind is that we only could get this early success because pandemic is raging right now. Because if you think about how we learned about the efficacy, companies that developed those vaccines Did trials of more than 40,000 volunteers. And then they had to wait for a certain number of people in this big cohort to develop COVID symptoms. So if COVID was somewhat under control, people wouldn't be getting it, then we would have to wait a lot longer for those 170 positive cases to show up.
0: Yeah, that's the real irony, right? It's because COVID has spread so quickly that we've been able to get such quick data on efficacy of these vaccines.
1: It is. It is. It's good and bad to it. The bad part, of course, is that it's raging, but the good part is that we will hopefully get it under control.
2: And these vaccines, the science behind them is a little different than I think the typical like flu shot vaccine, because not only is the the development of the vaccine uh, amazingly quick, but it's also a relatively new style or technique for developing a vaccine.
1: At the time of recording today, we have, I think, three different companies or consortia that have pretty promising uh, vaccines. And you're right, two of them are just mRNA-based, which is a really new technology. And the other one that just was published today, they are using a more traditional recombinant virus approach. So we'll have to see this mRNA technique has not been approved in any prior uh, circumstances. And I don't know if it was for a lack of trial or, or if it was for any problems, but I really hope that they can get those vaccines approved soon. What
0: I'm already seeing is a lot of discussion about how this new way of approaching vaccines could be now applied to other diseases that we now have a pathway for understanding the creation of a vaccine for. I don't want anybody to like get the impression that like we're trying to find a silver lining in a disease that has killed millions of people around the world. But this is a another thing that will come out of this experience and hopefully for the better.
2: Well, when you think about other coronaviruses that have created outbreaks. I believe isn't the common cold usually a coronavirus as well? Often, yeah. So, um, you know, we've never been able, there's always that joke of we can't figure out the cure for the common cold. And now we might have a pathway to doing so. If, if this style of vaccination tends to work better for coronaviruses than previous types of vaccine technologies have in the past.
0: And talking about working better, a lot of researchers thought that a good vaccine might be 50 or 60 percent effective. These vaccines at least apparently seem to blow those out of the water this really is some like some much needed good news
1: Yes, I think it is. But, you know, I think we should keep in mind that there's a difference between this efficacy in a clinical trial and then effectiveness, how well the vaccine really can protect population. Usually the effectiveness in a population tends to be a little bit lower than the clinical trial efficacies, but it's still pretty promising. One thing that I'm still trying to understand is those RNA-based vaccines, they will need very specific transport infrastructure because you have to store them at really low temperatures, minus 80 degrees Celsius. Transport chains for material that need this cold temperature can be challenging. And I think there is great potential in the future, but also the traditional ones need to be developed further and be part of the game here because we need to be able to vaccinate the whole world.
2: The thing that worries me is at least here in the u.s the misinformation the conspiracy theories have been so bad that i feel like as a nation america was already dealing with a problem with vaccines before the pandemic hit right we had very low vaccination rates a lot of people didn't think vaccinations were safe we're refusing to get them for themselves and their children it's creating a lot of problems uh measles outbreaks you know in in disneyland Mm -hmm. and, and all that and I felt like I was paying close attention to that developing story just because I'm a science communicator and I think that's a great failure of science communication in part as well as other failings in the way we educate our population and keep them science literate. And I always said the thing that's going to turn these people who don't like vaccines around is a disease that reminds us just how bad it can get if you're not vaccinated. And that happened. And I think I was completely wrong because I think the people who don't like vaccines are probably going to double down and refuse to get this vaccine. And so I'm glad we have a lot of options and potential pathways to get different kinds of vaccines that work in different ways. I'm worried about the compliance and getting enough people vaccinated that we actually are safe to return to some semblance of normal.
0: Well, it really creates more opportunities for misinformation, right? Like with every, and I'm with Morella 100%. I mean, like nobody should think that we are done, that one vaccine is good enough, particularly given the chain of transportation, uh, logistical challenges that are involved here. But every new vaccine is going to have something imperfect about it. And that's what I trust is going to be the things that vaccine deniers are going to jump all over.
1: Yeah, I agree. And here's one thing for science communication I think where we really need to do a better job we are so used to hearing infection rate and mortality rate right now people think oh you know mortality rate isn't so bad and I'm young so I probably won't die so I probably don't need to worry about it I think what really should get more public attention is the fact that death isn't the only bad outcome with the COVID-19 infection, young people can suffer long-term negative health effect. They can have lung problems. They can have neurological problems for we don't know how long. I think if we can get that information out, then probably people understand that vaccination might be the better option.
2: Maybe, but I also think that there's among certain subpopulations in the US, a historical distrust of medical science. And I think that's why, fortunately, I think it seems like a lot of the companies are doing a better job than they've done in the past of making sure that these early vaccine trials are representing a more diverse group of Americans than I think a lot of science in general has struggled to do. And hopefully that will overcome some of the fear and historical distrust in the medical establishment. But it's it's something I worry about. And I think it's going to take much like we will need multiple kinds of vaccines to get past the pandemic. I think we also need multiple kinds of science communication to get everyone uh, on the same page with the importance of getting as many people vaccinated as we can.
0: Overall are you guys feeling more optimistic now than you were just a few weeks ago?
1: Yeah, I'd say I'm I'm a little more optimistic. I'm also a little cautious because it's kind of unprecedented to have some clinical trials concluding so fast and I'm wondering if there really are side effects. Have we waited long enough for them to manifest? And it's one thing where I'm once those things go through FDA approval, I'm going to try to find information out about those additional factors but overall i'm more optimistic than i was some time ago probably i'm also just tired of covid being around (laughs) (laughs) they
2: they did say they were going to follow the uh, people who were involved in the vaccine trial for the next two years to keep an eye on potential side effects and negative outcomes so um, even though they're you know trying to get the vaccine out to the people as fast as they can they're still trying to i guess do right by keeping track of the people who were given the initial doses. I'm decidedly less optimistic. I think if a year from now we're not living in a zombie apocalypse, I'll consider us having dodged a bullet. Uh, (laughs) The thing that keeps me up at night is that a pandemic like this was probably inevitable given the relationship humanity has developed with the natural world. The more we cut down trees, the more we encroach Mm -hmm. on habitat spaces, the more we put ourselves in close contact with these virus reservoirs, you know, animals like bats and and other uh, places where these viruses tend to evolve, the more we're exposing ourselves to a pandemic like this happening. I read early on in the pandemic that it's estimated that up to 7 million people every year are exposed to novel coronaviruses, so coronaviruses that haven't been present in the human population before. And it only takes one of those to start this whole process over again. And so Mm -hmm. I think the current pandemic is the immediate threat, but we are not doing nearly enough to prepare ourselves and prevent, or try to at least lessen the odds of another pandemic coming right around the corner. Hmm. Viruses don't care that we're already in a pandemic. They'll they'll still keep coming.
1: Yeah, and the thing is, I think a lot of people think it's a novel virus so it must have been made new or it has come from someplace new and you're absolutely right there are millions of viruses out there that probably can do the same thing we just don't get exposed to because they are in remote areas in animals that we normally don't interact with on a face-to-face basis and the more we encroach them and the more we destroy habitat, the higher the likelihood that some of those Old viruses that are just sitting out there will cause damage. I agree completely.
0: In the time we have left today, tell me what research-related study or news caught your eye this month. Marilla, would you like to start?
1: Sure. I saw a study that found out that heterochromatin is not just junk DNA. And I don't know if everyone is familiar with the term junk DNA. We all know our genomes or Genetic material in every body cell has genes in them, but this really is just a smaller fraction of the whole genetic material in there. And because researchers for the longest time didn't know what the rest of the genetic material that was, particularly genes, was doing, they called it junk DNA or sometimes heterochromatin which isn't quite as derogatory but there's a new study out there that shows that junk dna isn't just junk but actually it's kind of it has guarding and management function and it helps with evolution in terms of that it can regulate how genes and species adapt so i thought that was really cool that now we can kind of get rid of the term junk dna because we learned something new about how our genetic material actually works
0: and ryan
2: i am so excited all right so i realized i was a bit of a downer at the end of the last segment so i'm going to bring everybody back up with this amazing story of female banded mongooses will start battles with other clans so they can mate with rival males (laughs) (laughs) So I I didn't know much about any element of this story, but the headline alone was enough to get me to read it. So apparently banded mongooses were observed in this park in Uganda, having these big fights and they live in these groups of up to 20 individuals and the groups, when they encroach on each other's territory, they will just draw battle lines and go at it. It's really intense. Um, There's actually the article was published in the proceedings of the national Academy of sciences titled exploitative leaders incite intergroup warfare in a social mammal. Um, which I will send Matthew the link to. And it has some videos of these battles that you can see. And what they found is the age of the group. So how long that group has been together was a determinant in the frequency of the fights being started because these groups end up mating within themselves. So they get inbred. And as the inbreeding goes up, females look for opportunities to mate with males outside the group. The females Mm. all go into estrus together together. And so the males start guarding them when they go into estrus. And so the females will then go lead the group because the males will just follow the females wherever they go. They'll lead the group into another group's territory, start a big battle and then mate with other males during the battle. (laughs) <laughs> so that they can get some uh, some outside DNA, Marilla, into the into the group. So it's this really interesting model where the males in the group suffer a cost because they're getting beat up by the other males and, and dying at some times, whereas the females get this benefit of um, more genetic diversity in their offspring so it's a very interesting trade-off because it's the females who have the, the incentive to both start the fight and benefit from starting the fight whereas the males just get beat up and killed. <laughs>
1: um nice follow-up on our non-gender specific hunter gatherers right so mm -hmm. it's all about the purpose in the long run
2: (laughs) and sort of reminded me of the caterpillars butting heads but this is a far more aggressive and violent and and (laughs) chirpy they're these like i mean they're almost the sounds they make you know in the battles are almost cute they're all like chirping at each other but then they they, like you know it looks like a a scene out of a medieval movie where they just line up and then go head to head at each other it's wild (laughs)
0: Ryan Haupt is the host of Science, sort of a spectacular podcast that you can listen to anywhere you get your podcast. Ryan, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And Marilla Meyrafika, geneticist from Utah State University. Thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you undisciplined is a production of utah public radio and if you happen to live in utah you can listen to us every thursday at ten thirty a.m on upr if you miss us then you can listen to every episode of undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts our producer is naomi ward our associate producer is mia dora our theme music is little idea by benjamin Tissot, and i'm matthew laplante thanks for listening now go have big ideas